Hey, weirdos. It's Syrah. And this week, we are talking with the one and only Laura Speakerman of Alloy. Alloy is a financial security and crimes company. And I am so excited to talk about all of the things with her as it pertains to banks, as it pertains to security, as it pertains to identity. So without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome to Girls Just Want to Have Fun, the weekly podcast that deconstructs the intimidating world of finance. Hosted by Syra Rahman, VP of Finance at HM Bradley, and her partner in crime, Megan McShane, a manager at a Fortune 100 company, and supported by Stockwitz. Girls Just Want to Have Funds will take on the important questions in personal finance that so many of us avoid, but also take on a glass of wine or two. Learn more, subscribe to the show, and join Syra and Megan on their no shame adventure to financial freedom at girlsjustwanna.com. Hey team, we are here today with the amazing Laura Speakerman of Alloy. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're super excited to have you, Laura. And just moments before we were doing our own audio visual check. Thank you, Matthew, for making dinner for your son and daughter. But we did a great job. And look, she has a beautiful microphone in front of her. And we got to meet her beautiful son, Nico, which that's adorable. So thank you for introducing us to your family. (laughs) You're so welcome. Yeah. So welcome. Okay. So we're just going to dive right in. The first question we always ask is, in our mind, every woman we interview is a heroine in their own regard. So in your own words, what has been your heroine's journey so far? Okay. I'll try to keep it short, but I, I think there's a way that I've managed to make it sound like I had a thoughtful progression of my journey because of the way that things unfolded over the last 10 or 12 years. But the reality is sort of every single step of the way, every six months or every year, I have no idea what I should do next. And I've never been someone who's very good at planning ahead for myself, for my career. And so it's been a series of kind of like dumb luck and missteps and I don't know, just probably doing things that no one else thinks they should do and probably thought I shouldn't do at the time, but it's sort of like worked out. And I give that caveat because I feel like I can tell, I'll tell the story the way it is, but I always feel like it's like a fake thing to make it sound like I had any inkling that I was doing something right along the way. So I graduated college, thought I was on the law school track because I didn't know that people could have other jobs besides being lawyers or doctors. And I joined a white collar criminal defense law firm in 2008 during the financial crisis. And it was sort of like the first way that I got to learn about actually like finance really through the lens of financial crime, which was really fun. And I loved it. And I loved our clients, weirdly enough. And I really, really enjoyed the work, but eventually realized I wasn't sure that I really wanted to be a lawyer. I started applying to law school, got in looked at how much I'd have to spend in like law school tuition and loans and realized that paying that back probably meant getting a really fancy law job that I wasn't even sure I could get and that that I'd like spend my career doing that. And I wasn't sure I really wanted to do that. So I thought back on like, what else would I want to do? And I ended up, and this is one of those times where I just, I think I just quit my job, had nothing else planned. I've done that a bunch of times against all advice. And I decided I really liked, I was really interested in microfinance. This is like 2010 or 11. 
I'd studied abroad in West Africa in college. This is 2007, I guess. And at that point, there were mobile phones everywhere, like dumb phones everywhere. And I was really interested in sort of this potential intersection in emerging markets of kind of dumb phones that were ubiquitous and lending, basically, sort of the ability to actually move money, lend money, et cetera. So I went to, I found these two guys on the internet and they had built a very basic software platform that was sitting on top of the M-Pesa rails in Kenya. And I just said, can I join you? I'm not sure what I'm going to do with my life or how to make money, but I'm going to, can I join you guys? And I was really lucky that they said, yes, we all found a little apartment together in Nairobi. And that was sort of the first foray into fintech for me. So I started understanding the power of fintech, of mobile money, of financial services infrastructure, and sort of watching Kenya leap ahead the US in many ways because of the infrastructure they'd built with M-Pesa. Eventually, I decided to come back to the US. We raised a little bit of money for that, that company. And I joined an investment firm here in San Francisco. Now it's part of Goldman Sachs at the time was independent where I did impact investing. So I was investing mostly in funds in Latin America, India, and Sub-Saharan Africa. And I spent a few years there. It was really fun. I learned a ton. I was really lucky to have a client who was really interested in financial services. So I got to spend a lot of time there still. But ultimately, I found myself just kind of getting bored of, I felt like we were not moving the needle. We were investing maybe a million dollars in a hundred million dollar fund. It was not that impactful. It was sort of just following the herd. And I found myself very jealous of the entrepreneurs I would meet like who were actually building businesses. And I thought that sounded way more fun. So eventually I left again without a job. I was living back home at that point at my mom's house. And so I could leave without a job. It was okay. And I found two guys on the internet again, who were in Richmond, Virginia and had started a ACH payments startup. And I saw one of that Tommy Nicholas, who's my current co-founder. I saw him present and I was totally blown away by him. And by the vision, which was to me very similar in some ways to the kind of M-Pesa stuff, which was build new payment rails, or at least kind of hack around the existing payment rails to make them a lot more usable and functional and cheap and fast for consumers. And so joined that business. It was probably five people at the time I started. It was clearly nine months in or so going to go downhill. It was very poorly managed by the CEO. And several of us decided to leave at that point. But we said, you know, we love working together. We think we've hit on some really interesting infrastructure problems in financial services. We love the fintech clients we're serving. Let's figure out how to make this work. And so we kind of head off on our own and started Alloy at that point. And now we've been doing that for over six years. You say it's like random and you definitely were like, oh, bouncing around and I can relate to that. And I think a lot of people can because like you feel like you're always searching for something. But like key themes that I hear you saying, it's like you always want to be learning. You always want to be helping in some way. I think that's probably why you started as a lawyer. And I think a lot of that, like those themes that you've had like throughout your career so far have helped you really grow. But first and foremost, you've had to take that risk which we talk about all the time. So how do you know, like when you got to that point, like that tipping point, you're like, I got to take another risk because I've just had enough. I don't know that it was, I guess the tipping point was leaving that startup. It was almost like there was not really anywhere. There was nowhere else to 
fall in certain ways. Like not that that was, you know, the depths of misery or whatever, but I was at a failing startup and it was not a well-respected startup. It wasn't something where you've had this great journey and we've learned a lot of lessons and people kind of know who you are. Like no one knew anything. We made no money. I made no money. It was definitely a failure, an abject failure. And I think that was liberating in certain ways to be like, okay, let's just, there's no harm in trying this next thing. I'm not leaving some big fancy job where I make a ton of money and have an important reputation to do this. It was easier to have that tipping point actually just be coming out of like a bad situation and saying like, why not try this? And I didn't really want to get a real job, which was, it was nice. I think that's fair. I think that's totally fair. And I think a lot of people could attest to being in the same situation, but staying, it's almost like a bad relationship. You're like, yeah, but they like me and I'm loyal. So I'll stay. So kudos to you for leaving. You know, we all feel sometimes things are so bad. You just have, you know, it was like, I think if it had been just mediocre, I would have been too scared and I would have stayed. I wasn't like a particularly brave person, but it was because things were so bad that we're like, we have no choice. We got to get out of here. Yeah, I definitely have been there. I feel like, gosh, there's so many of us that like sit there and we're like, it's okay to sit in a mediocre job and just like rot a little bit because at some points in your life, you just kind of need to deal with it and do it just to survive. Right. But I also get like the toxic point. I definitely jump ship when I felt like I was like falling into a pit of poison in my past. So I want to go back to your company for a second. So I know what it is. I'm fortunate. We are avid fans at HM Bradley and obviously, you know, have been using you guys for quite some time, but I would love to hear from the co-founder in your own words and maybe break it down a little bit exactly what Alloy does. Yeah. So Alloy is a service that both fintech companies and banks can use to manage their risk and identity concerns about their and sort of requirements about their end customers. So when a user is applying for a bank account or a fintech app, that bank or fintech company has a regulatory and business requirement to validate someone's identity to make sure that I am who I say I am, that I'm applying for this account, that my social security number matches, you know, Laura Speakerman's record, basically. And in the United States, there's really no single source of truth. And so what Alloy does is bring together all these signals. So public records, databases, credit databases, phone databases, email databases, anything that is useful in identifying someone. And we put all those signals in one place, one API, and we let the company control and configure how they want to make that check. So do they want to you know, heavily weight certain aspects of an identity over others? And it also depends on sort of what the purpose of the check is for. So often that could be know your customer, KYC, anti-money laundering, AML, but there's a lot of use cases just in simply in combating fraud, making sure that people aren't going to defraud you. So, and this is something, this is kind of a curiosity of mine, because to be honest, I don't even know, like traditionally, I know banks use like check systems and like a couple other pretty standard methods, but we used to have to do like four different things before we could let someone actually have their account. And you're saying Alloy actually wraps all of that into one? We wrap it into one place. So we bring any sort of identity check... And some of these, they may be old school kind of databases that exist, but as long as they're useful to you as the client, or as long as they're useful to you because 
your compliance department has okayed them, right? Or your regulator has okayed them, we'll put them there. And then we will see a lot of our fintech companies sometimes experimenting with some of the newer alternative forms of data. And they're doing it in a compliant way, but they're sometimes a little bit more willing to experiment with digital identity profiles. I think in general, they feel like those are a decent replacement, I suppose, for like a social security card, which is maybe the most traditional method. And of course, none of us would ever I don't even know where my social security card is. So my dad's going to kill me for saying this out loud, but I have no idea where my social security card is. I don't know if I even need that to get my marriage certificate this week. Hopefully I don't, but we'll find out soon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. Laura, I'm understanding Alloy a little bit better now too, because obviously I did my research before we talked to you. It made sense, but it makes a lot more sense coming from the co-founder. Okay. So put yourself in a consumer's shoes because a lot of people that are listening to this podcast have been on the journey with me and Sai since the beginning where she she goes, go out there and sign up for a couple of banks and see what they're like. And now I'm very comfortable and I pride myself on that. But I was very, very cautious about giving out my social security number and for people knowing my identity and where I'm at and whatever. So in your shoes as a consumer in this ever evolving kind of digital landscape that we live in, all of us all over the country right now on this call, when you look at a bank or another like financial institution and you're going to invest your money, store your money there, grow your money there, what are like the key things that you look for like in a bank? Well, I think the you know, the biggest thing is trust and so to some extent it's like do you have some ability to trust this bank based on its website? I'm in a different position because I know a lot of the people where I bank because it's like H and Brad, like I know the people who run this company. I know they're, you know, legit. But I think if you're an average consumer, it's complicated because you have to sort of there are telltale signs, but you have to know what those are. So for example, the vast majority of probably services we're talking about, neobanks are not banks in and of themselves. You'd have to sort of scroll to the bottom of the website, understand whether or not there's FDIC insurance, understand what the bank is behind that. I think that's it's not hard to do. It's just right there on the website, but it's not necessarily clear what that even means. I think if I told my friends, they would have no idea. So that's what I look for, but I don't think it's necessarily obvious. And then beyond that, I really, you know, I'm pretty simple. I just like a good user experience and I like it to be friendly. And I also look for kind of like non-evil banking where I can. So I don't like to bank at the huge banks. I understand that at a deep level. And that was the one thing that I tried to talk Megan out of because I know she and I both at one point lived in the same building. And I know there's a bank downstairs that rhymes with Schmank of America. And (laughs) and I was like, do not go there. And I know Kitty Corner to it. There's a bank that rhymes with um, HP Morgan. So (laughs) does that rhyme? That doesn't even rhyme. I'm like at that point in my day where I'm tired. But anyways, when you think about stuff in the bank, like the traditional bank world, what are some of the things that you think still need to be optimized? Like what are some things that you think still need to be worked on, particularly as it points to like banking and security? Yeah, I guess the banking and security piece is hard because I do think we're pretty far behind where we should be. I think there was like, if I think of the last 10 years, which is just like the only part I can really speak to is like, I think there was a first wave, which was around distribution and access. And I'm sure, you know, by no means have we solved that problem, but I think we've made a lot of inroads with various mobile devices, you know, things that it makes it easier to do stuff. You don't have to walk into a branch necessarily. 
but I think the next foray for me has been around identity. So it's like we made it easier to find where you open your account, but we haven't made it super easy to actually get that account because not everyone is visible in that system. There's a lot of what we call thin file people or sort of more invisible people in in the system who can't be verified very easily. So if you're doing this not in a branch, you're not sitting across from someone with your driver's license, it's a lot harder. So if you're new to the country, if you're under 18, if you know, if you just haven't sort of built a real credit profile among other things, I think it's harder to be seen. And that's one of the things I think we've really got to fix. That also makes it harder from a kind of security standpoint on the other side, because the banks don't really know how to do this. And they're going to treat you more and more like a criminal, basically, that's going to be the starting point until you can prove that you're not. And so I think that's one of the bigger challenges we have right now in the system. And there's no single database again. So I think we're not a country that's going to figure out how to do that. Well, from my point of view, it's going to be, it's going to be individual companies that do it. Isn't that such a, it's such a strange place, right? Like to be like, you're guilty until we tell you you're not in banking, whereas everywhere else, it's the exact opposite. And it's something that strikes me a lot because I know it's something my parents struggled with, especially when they first came into the US. So I want to double click on that a little bit, Laura. Do you ever think there's going to be a point where we can start collecting information on like immigrants and people that are coming in from other countries in a more methodical manner so that we can turn thin file people into a little bit more like more attainable bank customers? I think the work that like Nova Credit is doing, for example, which where they are just it's less about bringing the data collection here, it's actually just being able to say there are data points being collected around the world about these people, just not in the US. They may be moved from a different country where they have a credit history. And it's, I'm saying credit, and that's kind of the proxy for identity here, but it doesn't actually have to necessarily mean credit. But that, you know, we can kind of import your identity history or your credit history from another country. So that's what Nova Credit is doing. They partner with bureaus around the world to be able to sort of bring that home. That's to me is the right way to do it. You're still going to miss a whole bunch of people by doing it that way. So that's one challenge, but I don't see a way that the U S can really do it in a real methodical catch all way, unless we get to kind of self-sovereign identity. You know, there's a lot of blockchain identity solutions that people are talking about. I haven't, you know, obviously I think None of them has really succeeded so far. It's still really early days. I hope that exists. I think we're building a business for a world where that doesn't exist, at least for a while. I think it's it's a long ways off if it ever comes. From a very outsider point of view, and I know you guys are very much in finance, it sounds like there's so many decisions that have to be made, like on the back end, that none of us, like average Joes or Moes or whatever the male or female equivalent is, it just seems like, there has to be a better way to optimize without falling into, you know, the, what did we say? The HP Morgan of the world, (laughs) right? Like, because I feel like you guys are walking a very fine balance being in FinTech. I almost said FinTwit. Where you're like, whatever. You're kind of like F the man. We're getting away from the man. There's stuff that's broken. We can fix it, but we want to fix it on our own way without becoming the man. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it's also like, man, I wish the man would get a lot better at this because they bank like the top five banks or top four, even maybe bank 
I think 80% of consumer assets in the US are banked there. I might have get that wrong, but something like that. It's like we could actually fix those banks and make them really functional for people. That would be huge. Or also just like break them down and force them to stop being an oligopoly. But but that's the other that's yeah. the other way of doing it's, it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Smash them apart. So I told you I banked with a couple banks, which we don't disclose, but I have very good banking hygiene now because of our lovely friend Syra here. But how many banks do you bank with? Like, don't tell us the names, obviously. But, you know, I'm basically asking you the question, is diversification important to you, knowing how much you know about the back end? Oh, that's interesting. Well, so maybe it should be important to me and it's not. I don't know. I do have a few bank accounts Two of them are at neobanks. One of them is at a traditional institution. And actually, it's the one that I've been trying to close for over a year. And I keep, I think, like $100 in it. But they keep making me call to do it. And of course, and oh, it was like call and then print a form and then, you know, do 10 things that I'm just never going to do. So instead, I just like keep 100 bucks in it. And I'm like, I guess that's it. I'll just forever have this bank account that sits there empty. So it's really at these two neobanks I have. And then I have a number of other accounts where I have trading that I'm doing or crypto or or a CD, for example. And then I have like a zillion apps on my phone too. But that's more because I like to try stuff out. Yeah. I was telling Megan that like she's my polar opposite. She has like her few bank accounts because she doesn't want everybody to know her information. Meanwhile, I'm like, you know, spraying my information every single fintech. Yeah. I just want to see what it's like, yeah. you know. Yeah. Look, 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 look. <laughs> I have a folder on my iPhone now that says finance and there's more than three apps. I'm just going to go oh, ahead that's and say good. that. Ooh, so you're getting into the fintech space. Yeah. Maybe this is a question for both of you. How the hell do you keep track of all that? Do you aggregate it in one place? I don't. I actually think about this a lot and I'm like, can someone just make me an app that aggregates everything? I basically only find out at tax time when I get like a 1099 or not 1099, like a dividend thing, you know, and I've made like 34 cents in interest over the year. And then I have to report it (laughs) to the IRS. That's like half of my accounts are sort of like that. And then otherwise I'm kind of a set it and forget it kind of person, like with the exception maybe of trading where I am sort of more active and otherwise, it's like an account that I opened, I put a thousand bucks into it. Some of them I have auto deposit from my paycheck to invest and save over time, but I don't really think about it. To Laura's point, I get a little, I have one OCD, which is the accounts that I'm actively and I have to get a notification first thing in the morning. Like I like to know that my money is still in existence and that it didn't disappear overnight because I, I have this constant fear that I'm going to be poor someday. Like very poor, like broke, 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 <laughs> broke, 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 like I was when I was 22. And the second piece of it is no. Like I do like $5 pushes into random accounts because I like to see what happens to that $5 in each account. But I'm never... Those accounts I don't really pay attention to and, you know... There probably some kind of there's some kind of security nightmare there in the background that I haven't fully thought about. But, you know, every time I see that there's a cool update, I still go into that app and then I mess around with it. But that's about the extent. All right. What I'm hearing from both of you is you enjoy risk and you're in finance. I feel like there's something there where it's like me that's in tech and is like a Luddite, like doesn't know how to do anything. 
So there's that. Well, but the market's been so good over the last however many years that if you put a little money in a while ago and you forget it, come back and you're, it's like same with Bitcoin, right? Like you're like, well, now I made a lot of money and I didn't even remember that I had this account. Dips down below 19K, suddenly is up over 50. And I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> My crypto accounts are worth something again. So Laura, this actually is the perfect introduction to our next question, which is what keeps you up at night about our financial system? You know, the thing that bums me out so much is that I like you and I, Sarah, probably know every, you know, we could between the two of us name a zillion fintech companies. And yet I think none of them are really good PFM. So like none of them are personal financial management tools that people use. I think about that a lot. Like it sucks so bad that that doesn't actually exist. And I'm sorry to the companies that are out there trying, but I, and I think that that's great. I hope to see it. But the fact that like my friends and I don't all use a set of tools that actually help us spend better, save better, whatever sucks a lot. And I think about that sometimes. And I'm like, man, how we've come this far and there's still really no good company or two that's helping us do that. And so my friends and I all like, I should be a lot better with money than I am. And, you know, that sucks. Give me like a year at HMB. We're working on something. We are working <laughs> okay, on something. We're okay. actively working on something. That, is, oh, that cool. is definitely, that's a personal goal of mine. Like there was no way I was joining HMB unless I felt like we were building out like the right ecosystem. But I actually hear you on that. It's a bummer. And I understand all of the constraints around it. It makes perfect sense why it's really, really hard, really hard to monetize. All the things make perfect sense. But it would be really game changing for people. I, I think about my, sorry, you know, way more about money management than I do. But I think I know a lot more than some of my friends. And I'm like, if my finances are handled, like the way I'm handling them, imagine what they're doing. Right. I feel that. I feel that deeply. I do too. For what it's worth. In the past year, trying to get my personal finances together, I'm like, how do you keep track of all of this? And by the way, I don't know if Apple Notes, and I probably shouldn't be saying this because we're talking about identity, and like keeping it secure, but all of my money is like in an Apple OneNote, like when I was trying to figure out. What does that mean? When she I started to figure out. Me. <laughs> when I started to figure out, so I was oh. like, yo, where's all your money going? And I was like, I don't know. And so then I started writing down like, what do I spend all my money on? And I have like various like Apple notes on my phone. Oh, interesting. Um, where I keep all of it. And I'm like, oh, this is how much money I actually bring home. And you're like, oh, you know, in your gut. But then that's how I figured out like all these three accounts and where the money should go. But again, probably not the most secure way. <laughs> no, yeah. That's okay. That. When I, the last time I did a picture, I was trying to get a mortgage and I put together like a Google Doc spreadsheet of all of it. And it took me like, took me so long as I had to go into each and you know thing and download the thing. And, and then I would be surprised because there was only like $10 and something. And I was like, why am I even reporting this? But it's very time consuming to track yourself. Yeah. Agreed. But worth it. So for season two of Girls Just Want to Have Fun, we're doing series. And you're part of one of our series, obviously. And we have four questions about finances that we're asking each interviewee. And so the first one for you is within your world, what advice would you give people if they wanted to start a bank? Where should they start? I mean, my first piece of advice is don't do it. <laughs> it sounds painful. I see our clients. I'm like, oh man, that's so much work. I do think picking a there's sort of a, I don't know, maybe if it's, it might be a 
trope by now, but picking a specific financial problem that you're aware of or that you feel personally. I've seen that come out recently. There's like a whole new you know, class of fintech companies that are addressing kind of more niche. And we say the word niche, but it's like not really fair to call them niches because they cover giant populations. So there are banks who are trying to address specific financial needs of LGBTQ populations, for example, or African-American populations. And I think that's an interesting place to start if you can start with the premise that there are tons of people out there who are not being well served and what are the reasons that they're not being well served and pick some of those. So some of it might be the devices or sort of the mechanism by which they're served, whether that's branch or mobile or, you know, there's sort of like, could we have trucks that go around? There's just, you know, you can sort of think of the ways that you could possibly interact with your financial institution. Some of it might be the actual products you're given. So whether they're for, you know, sole prop LLCs and freelancers or for people who spend a lot of money on dog things, right? And so I think there's just, there's a lot of financial things out there that people need and you just have to figure out if there's one that's big enough that it could be served with a specific financial product. I do think in the end, building a bank in the US is really, really tough because the regulatory environment is built to favor the large financial institutions. And so again, overall, my advice is don't do it. (laughs) Which leads to the next question, which is what resources would you recommend to people who want to understand the regulatory environment and laws as it pertains to the banking world? You know, the funny thing about reading, so Alloy was really built in part in reaction to the Bank Secrecy Act. And sometimes we talk about Alloy like it's solving this really complicated identity thing and it's such a complicated you know, piece of software and API and da-da-da. But really, when you look at the Bank Secrecy Act, it's super straightforward in the sense that it is you can read it and you understand what they're saying. The hard part about it is it's not prescriptive. It doesn't tell you exactly how to do these things. It's sort of like, here are the checks you need to do, roughly. You figure out how to do them. I think reading that is actually a pretty basic thing that you can do to sort of understand where some of the regulations come from. And then I think reading about these fines, like I always am intrigued, also it's kind of juicy, but like you read about some of the money laundering activities that go on and sort of the way that money changes hands and the banks get fined, I think is really compelling. And it helps bring to life some of the otherwise very, very dry regulatory stuff because you understand how these crimes are happening, why they're happening who's doing them and, and sort of what are the mechanisms that they're using. So I, I like always enjoy the kind of front page, you know, Deutsche Bank, whatever finds stories. And then this might be a more personal question because you are a woman in finance and we interview a lot of women who we love, but do you think there would be a difference or a bigger threat if I was a female that wanted to open her own bank? Would it be easier for a male? Yeah. Almost everything's easier for men. Why do you think that is? Well, you have to go raise tons of money to be a bank. That's easier for men. You have to convince people that you are going to be very, very responsible. And I think that's easier for men, right? Especially if you're blonde, maybe like you or me. I think there's like there's sort of an idea that you're we're not as smart overall. I think there's that impression of a lot of women. I think it's just a harder world. So I don't know that it's that different 
from building any other type of business, except that it's maybe more male than some of the other industries. But yeah, I think it's really tough. I guess the one, I suppose women are viewed as being less risk taking. Maybe that's one slight, slight advantage a woman might have in trying to build that business. And here we are talking to you and Sai, who I think are some, you know, of the two people I've talked to today, probably the biggest risk takers. And I've already talked to a lot of people, if you can believe it. Yeah, we keep circling that a lot, Laura, for real. It's a topic we've talked about, you know, the risk aversity of a lot of women in taking that risk. And you explained so beautifully at the beginning of this interview, like going to Kenya, moving to Africa, starting a business, moving it back to the U.S., and really putting your whole heart and soul into it while having a family, while having everything. And so, I don't know, it, it makes me sad to hear you say that, but I also understand that it is harder for women to do a lot of things and we have to be louder and more assertive. And yeah, so I appreciate your perspective and I'm entirely, you it's know, a bummer. I, I wish I, I mean, I yeah. wish, I wish I had a different answer and I hope someone else does have a different answer to that question. And I would like to, I prefer to invest probably with, you know, a woman building a bank than a man, but I just, I just think it's harder, but the way that I think most things are harder for women. We actually just recently interviewed someone that's in the middle of their fundraise and she is a female and she was talking about how she was literally told to her face. She's building a fintech company that for all intents and purposes has bank-like qualities, but is not a bank. And someone, one of the potential investors actually told her that she would be better off if she had a male co-founder. And I was like, how disheartening to hear that, you know, when you're trying to figure that process out for someone to give you that advice. Like, it would be better if you had, you know, a pair of balls on your team. Like, come on. So I don't necessarily think you're wrong. And for me, that's like a brutal reality because I know Megan and I would love to start our own company. And it's something we continue to noodle on. Like, what will the perception be when it's all female? Yeah, I struggle a lot because I talk to a bunch of other female entrepreneurs, but I've had a different experience having male co-founders. I really think it's different to be, you know, not that it's been easy all the time for me, but it definitely is different. One, being a white woman too, that's totally different. But then also having male co-founders, like that is definitely easier than being a solo female founder, just two female founders or female founders who are women of color. Very different story unfortunately. So final question, and this one's a little bit of a curveball, but what type of advice would you give someone that wanted to get into like crypto slash DeFi? Oh, baby. I don't know, man. I wish I had, <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to that because I'd like to. Well, I think maybe this person is already risk taking, but I feel like my advice to like anyone I meet is to try to be more risk taking in general. I think like seeing what's at the bleeding edge and risk a little bit of what you're doing, money, reputation, time, comfort, I think has always paid off for me. And so I really, really, really believe in that. And I believe in doing like the the harder thing, I guess. Not necessarily harder, but just sort of the scarier thing. I feel like that's always a, a good thing. Crypto and DeFi, I guess, like the limit on there is, you know, don't do stuff that's going to get you thrown in jail. But I do think if I could spend time, I'd want to just like learn what the new shit is. That's where I would like to, I was actually talking to someone yesterday who was in fintech and I was saying, I just wish I could like put a pause on my job and go learn about DeFi for a month because I feel very behind on it. 
honestly, in so many ways, so do I. I like started joining Discord channels so that on my weekends, I can just like read what the kids are saying and try to stay cool. But that that's like been the extent of it for me. <laughs> so I mean, I think that's that's great. I hope to just be able to like follow, you know, via people like you, because maybe I can just learn through osmosis, through Twitter osmosis. Twitter osmosis. That's my goal. The best way to mm-hmm. learn. Right on. <laughs> yep. So final question, Laura, before we wrap up, where can people find you online and in, in the real world to get in touch? Real world in Berkeley, California. Although our alloys in New York and I'm there with some regularity. And then on Twitter, Laura Speakerman. And I have LinkedIn, like the rest of people. And I have an email address, laura at alloy.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been a wealth of knowledge. Thank you, guys. This has been. This has been a lot of fun, Laura. Thank you so much. Okay, Meg. So what did you think? Now you know a little bit about like, financial security. Yeah, I know. I mentioned it a little bit on the the episode. I was like doing as much homework as I could do, like on websites and LinkedIn and Twitter. But it's really hard to understand the inner workings of banks and what goes into identity protection and all that jazz. So it was really nice to hear straight from Laura, who's very down to earth, very real. And I think a lot of people that are outside of the banking world forget that like real people work at banks or in banking. So it was nice to hear from her. I feel like I learned a lot. I wrote down a lot of acronyms too. <laughs> KYC, KYB, AML, AML. BSA, P- yeah. anti-money PSM. laundering. Anti-money laundering. Personal finance manager. ACH is what? ACH is automatic clearinghouse, but it's the slow way of moving your money. Remember when you t- we talked about that one time when you tried to transfer money to one of your banks and you were like, where did my money go? It's out of one bank. It's not at the other. That's via ACH. Oh, okay. ACH. Got it. Got mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. then PFM, personal finance. Personal manager. Manager. Mm. Huh. Love it. That's like, yeah, that's like an, an Ask Zeta or mm. a, that's a personal finance manager. Love it. Yeah. Okay. All right. A little bit more from my journal. How did you feel? How would you, you sum up the convo? What do you think? So I am biased, right? I have a deep, deep love for Laura and Alloy generally. But beyond that, I just like taking away nuggets of information. I mean, it's nice to know that like she and I are similar insofar as we have like our mains and then we have our side pieces that we also mess around with a little bit in terms of finance. (laughs) She's talking about right. Yeah. Talking about banks. But yeah, like I love that she has just a very honest and thoughtful approach to how she views the banking world and how she views like financial security generally. Right. And for what it's worth also being like a female co-founder that has been through a lot and that understands that understands that not every place that you work at is a wonderful place to work. Like just like so many themes that we've seen across the board from everyone we've talked to so far Mm -hmm. and feeling the realness behind what she's saying. And I think collectively uncovering things that maybe both of you have might have thought working in finance and areas of opportunity that, you know, there's a big wide world here and there's new opportunities for women, young people, old people, minorities, immigrants to come in and really solve some of these needs that are needed 
needs that are needed. That's how I felt. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I just, every time I think about Alloy, one of the things I think about is all of the different things our tellers would have to do to get a bank account open Mm. and how she compacted all of them into one and how many banks could generally do better if they participated in a product like hers, but they're probably too afraid because they're too used to their traditional technology. So if you're a traditional bank listening to this episode, no, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) You're about to be scolded. No, you're not. You set the precedent. We're making it better. We. The royal we. You. The royal we. No, the you and I. Yeah, sure. Sure, sure. We're bringing it to light. How about that? I can do that. Definitely. Mm -hmm. All right. I think this was great. I love these Saturdays with you and getting dressed up to stare at you through a screen and <laughs> want to see you in person soon. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, I'm going to surprise you in Seattle very soon. I'm going to let's throw that out there and make you a little bit afraid. Okay. I'm Good. nervous and scared, but excited. Good. I'll send you the dates when I officially book the tickets. <laughs> should we, should we wrap it up, babe? Yeah, we should. Definitely. Love you. All right. Love you too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us. Head on over to girlsjustwanna.com where you can subscribe to the show, follow Megan and I on social, or even text us your important financial questions. And remember, there's no shame in asking anything. We'll see you next time on Girls Just Wanna Have Funds. Funds.